Hi folks and welcome back to the Shrapnel Podcast. It's been a bit of a week, there's been some controversy around chance about things that belong in the past and some things that we have to deal with uh, and this is one of the reasons we have the Shrapnel Podcast. This is one of the reasons Gareth and Sam continue to have these conversations. Please let people know, please let your friends know, tell them, recommend it and if you can, stick a little five-star review up on your podcast app. It helps people find us. It's the only way to climb the charts with a podcast like this. We don't have a budget for advertising or spending. Thanks for listening, and if you are getting something out of it and you think there's a value in it, maybe check out the other podcasts on the Tortoise Shack. There is a lot to choose from, including my own, Echo Chamber, which has recorded over 900 episodes. So, And there's also a consolidated feed where you get all the Tortoise Shack podcasts in one place, and that's available now on patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack, and it's entirely plea-free, so you don't have to listen to me ask you for support or any of the other things that we insert into the pods. Thanks again and enjoy this important conversation with Leona O'Neill. Welcome to the Shrapnel Podcast. I'm Sam McElwain and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Gareth Mulvenna. On this episode we have Leona O'Neill. Leona is a former Belfast Telegraph journalist, a columnist for the Irish News, course director of journalism at Ulster University and an author. Her book that she writes with Chris Lindsay, Breaking Trauma in the Newsroom, is due out very soon. Hello, Leona. Hello. Hi, Leona. How Hello, are Gareth. You? Hi, Sam. Hi, everyone. <laughs> As I said beforehand, I think this one's going to be one of our more tricky pods. Uh, we're, we're asking questions of one of the chief interrogators. It's sort of rule reversal <laughs> for Leona. Um, Leona, uh, so I, no problem. I'm going to kick off with with what brought us to the attention of, of doing this pod with yourself, and that was the book. Uh, and as far as I can see, Trauma in the Newsroom is about mental health and the mental health of yourself and your colleagues through probably the darkest of times and the troubles and having to report what the rest of us were reading or watching. Um, how dark actually did it get? Yeah, so the, the book is Breaking Trauma in the Newsroom. It's about, it's what, I think it's got 16 journalists talking about their experiences. Now, they're not all troubles-related um, experiences, so we have journalists talking about the stories that broke them, essentially. So that could be, you know, there's someone talking about a, a murder trial um, in Mauritius. There's someone talking about um, a tsunami. Uh, or an inquest into a, a child's death, or um, me myself, I'm talking about the, the night that Lear McKee was murdered. Chris Lindsay's talking about a riot where he was injured. Something blew up, a pipe bomb blew up and um, injured him in the back, and he was kind of changed forever for that. Other people, um, Josh is talking about uh, the war in Afghanistan and um, he had covered that and how that impacted him. There are such a, a whole host of stories in there that they're not all related to the Troubles. I mean, um, Henry McDonald's certainly talking about the likes of the Oma bomb and how that impacted him. And other um, journalists like David Blevins, perhaps journalists of, a, of a, another of a certain generation, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> of a certain generation are talking about um, events that they covered here themselves in Northern Ireland. Of course, that would be peppered by um, atrocities and murders and, and bombs and bullets and all the rest of the stuff. Um, but it's more, the, the book is more about um, how ordinary stories also can break you just as much as the big stories, you know, the witnessing a murder or just the grim conveyor belt of news that often um, happens in our in our newsrooms and how that can kind of grind you down day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. And I suppose that the, the reason that we did this book was because um, I myself have been a journalist for, for 24 years and talking about mental health in the newsroom and journalist mental health is just just doesn't happen you know journalists are supposed to you, you might have heard the saying you know hard hard nosed reporter um tough cookie you know you have to be tough to be a reporter uh, all this kind of stuff and the result of that is that 
journalists are dealing with really horrific stories. I mean, this is day and day that journalists have to deal with really horrific stories. They're they're covering the tragedies, they're covering the the car accidents, they're covering inquests, they're covering murder trials, they're covering court. Um, they're there on the worst days of um of people's lives, you know, what they're sitting in people's living rooms and they're absorbing all that trauma. And then they go back to the newsroom and um, you know, it's just on to the next, on to the next, on to the next. So there's there's no kind of there's no processing of it. You're just it's a constant um as I say, just a conveyor belt of doom, I suppose, and I can wear you down. I can wear any you know, we're we're not robots, we're human beings. So that's what that's really basically what what the book's about, about different sixteen people, sixteen journalists talking about their own um personal experiences of being really impacted, impacted in ways, you know, some people um got PTSD, they're talking about that. I got PTSD. Um other people you know, attempted suicide. Some people completely left the job behind the the job that they had built up over, you know, perhaps two decades, three decades. They completely left it because of something that happened, or it just got too much for them. So the the thought behind it was that we need to get the we need to get things sorted before people reach that. Um, Josh and his chapters talking about um, standing on the. <coughs> I'm so sorry. <coughs> Okay. I'm I'm losing my voice here, um, but Josh is talking about in his chapter about standing on the twenty fourth uh, story of a of a apartment, um, a hotel, sorry, room in um, Dubai, and surrounded by beauty and opulence and just everything, and feeling so low that he just uh, wanted to end everything. And you know. We want to get our journalists before they get to that point. You know, we, we don't want people to suffer in silence. And that's why I talk about things. And people are probably fed up listening to me on Twitter talking about um, about the book and about mental health and about we have to look after our journalists and we have to look after, um, you know, our newsrooms and stuff. But it's because of things like that, because of stories like that, stories from, from Josh, stories from all the people that are in the book, stories from people that are not in the book that told me personally, privately, themselves of their own experiences um, and, and just sort of the tough times that they have gone through and that nobody, no, there's nobody there to listen to them. And this kind of mentality that our journalists have to be so tough and hard-nosed and just get on with it. And if you're not tough, you're not up for the job. That's a really toxic um, mindset, and that's what I want to change, and that's what the book, essentially, that's where the book came from. Yeah, I mean, we're all well, quite surely, happy to Leona, go on. Uh, sorry. sorry, go ahead, Sam, go ahead. Sorry, Sam. No, I'm just <laughs> going to say, we're, we're, we're called quite happy to go on the Twitter and throw away the hashtag, it's okay to talk, and it's okay not to be okay, but in the real world, that doesn't really transfer. I mean, the newsroom is probably one of those centres, like a few others that we can name, that a toxic masculinity also almost comes over, where... Yeah. Pull, pull up the big boy pants and away you go again you know it's yeah it's where do we find the decompression time in, in those trades where again as you say it, it is just a conveyor belt of doom um yeah what can what can what can newsrooms do better well i suppose they can recognize that uh journalists do uh are impacted by by trauma by secondary trauma it's a thing called vicarious trauma where um, the trauma has not actually happened to you. You're you're sort of absorbing it from somewhere else, and that that can be through. It's I think Gareth, you and I talked about this before, but it's um, you know, it's through. It's all you can you can experience it through talking to people who have experienced trauma, and that's what journalists do. Obviously, you know, they go out and they talk to people. You know, the London bombings, interviewing the people after the London bombings, or a family tragedy, and you're in their the, the person's living room getting the story from their their loved ones who are devastated and you're absorbing all that trauma or even you know reporters aren't aren't the only ones photographers also and also the people who deal in archives and and you're looking at photographs horrific photographs that would never make um would never make the the, the newspaper because they're so graphic um coming in from the wires perhaps from all around the world from war zones and and even from our own experience here and of the troubles um, you know, going, going through all those kind of photographs, but those are real people in those photographs with real lives and real loved ones and stuff like that. And, you know, whenever um, 
I suppose when when you go on as a journalist and you a lot of a lot of journalists experience this, they kind of put up some kind of emotional barrier uh, to protect themselves from that. Um, but nobody ever teaches you anything like that. You know, you're just you're. And when I was kind of uh, when I was learning to be a journalist and when I was training and stuff, it was just you go out, you do the job. This is how you write a story. This is how you uh, edit the story. This is and, and then it's printed and that's it. And there's no kind of there's there's nothing on the periphery of that. There's no kind of are you okay after that? That was a really rough story about you know a child dying perhaps or um, something horrific happening. Are you okay? But nobody ever asked you that because. In the, in the newsroom, there's very much a mindset of you are not the story. Don't make it about yourself. Uh, don't tell anybody if it impacts you. And then people just kind of, that builds up and builds up and builds up over the years until somebody breaks. And, and that's, you know, oftentimes that is what happens. There's a, there's a it might not be as much now, but, you know, in, in previous years, there was a lot of journalists that had alcohol problems. They used drugs as a crutch. They overworked as a crutch. I did that myself. Um, working twenty four seven, you know, every day of the year, um, or um, you know, they 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 have dangerous kind of they do dangerous stuff, or they do stupid stuff, or they can't hold relationships down. All these different things that kind of revolve around the the newsroom and the people that work on it, because some of the people that are uh, working there perhaps have been damaged by the things that they have seen and the things that they have covered and and, and stuff like that. What? Yeah, I'm sorry, Leona, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what can they do better? Recognize that. Mm-hmm. Recognize that the journalists are human. Uh, there are there, there is some really good work. I'm working with some people over in uh, in England and stuff at the moment now about around journalism safety, and they're rolling out things in uh, in the newsrooms. Um, for example, Reach PLC have um, they have a, a, a specific person who deals with. Online abuse—that's a huge issue for journalists these days as well. Um, but they have a—they have a person who deals specifically with that. All our newsrooms have, you know, uh, the BBC, for example, have um, a mental health, um, you know, a person that you go to if, if you're, um, you know, have any mental health issues or anything like that. The problem is. That's that's fantastic that that's happening, but the problem is the mindset needs to change so that journalists don't feel afraid to go and talk about you know this has really impacted me. This is, um, you know, this story has really upset me. I haven't been able to sleep for a week or whatever. We need to we need to sort of you know push back against that mindset that that says that journalists have to be hard nosed and just get on with things. Sorry, Gareth, I interrupted you there. No, no, not at all. Sorry, I jumped in on you there. Um... Yeah, we had that conversation, I think, in uh, direct message on Twitter. And, you know, I found it really interesting because I, I've known Chris Lindsay for, I think, about 20 odd years. And I remember when that happened to him and, you know, he got the, sh- ironically, it was, he got a bit of shrapnel. Um, so, yeah. you know, ties back with the title of the podcast. But, you know, that is something that I think I always think about the idea that you're told not to make the story about yourself. And it's the same with some of the work that I was talking about with you um, in archives where, you know, you're dealing with victims and survivors who are asking for information about about our troubled past. Um, But you're the one who has to process that information. You have to look at the photographs. You have to deal with uh, all the details. Uh, But but sometimes you have to, you know, look at yourself and and look after yourself. And I I certainly find... There's a lot of parallels anyway in, in the work I've done over the years, um, the historical research, because you're going to some really dark places, but there is also that yeah. guilt. You think, but I didn't suffer directly because of any of this, but is it a case that you are actually suffering by um, the fact that you're writing about this and you're interacting with these people, and whether it be victims and survivors or people who perpetrated violence? What what way do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah. There, there is a thing called secondary trauma. It is a real thing. It's a real psychological um, thing, for want of a better word, for want of a more technical word. And it is um, absorbing trauma from, you know, not directly from an incident, but from uh, from the person perhaps who has been impacted by that incident. Um, you know, I even before the Lyra McKee incident, I, I used to be, impacted by stories quite a lot and I used to think I was the only person that this happened to for example 
I remember um, I interviewed Kathleen Gillespie, uh, who's Patsy Gillespie's wife. So Patsy, the IRA chained Patsy to the van, uh, to his work van, and, and held the family hostage and drove him to a uh, border checkpoint here, an army border checkpoint, just not not actually too far from me here, uh, on the border with Donegal, and um, and blew blew it up and, and killed Patsy, and they held the you know the family captive and stuff in the house at gunpoint, and um, and I had been a journalist. This was maybe this is maybe five five years ago or whatever, and I'd been a journalist at that stage maybe fifteen years, and I'd seen it all and heard it all and. I don't know what it was, and sometimes it just sneaks up on you. But I was sitting in, in Kathleen's living room, and I was surrounded by photographs, beautiful family photographs of Patsy smiling and Patsy with his children, and and you know she still had his had his clothes, you know, in the house, and there's wee bits and pieces of of Patsy's wee ornaments and trophies that he had won and stuff like that in the in the living room where, you know, years before the IRA had held them at gunpoint, and in the living room where. Uh, she had heard the bomb go off and that was the end of her husband's life and in the living room where you know his coffin had laid and stuff and it was very um it was very uh I, I don't know how to I don't even know how to describe it how it impacted me but just her talking about it and she hadn't talked about it very much and we had a really long conversation I was there for about an hour and a half and she cried and cried and cried and I, I am not I, I, I didn't cry then it impacted me so much. I went out and I said my goodbyes and stuff to, to Kathleen and I went out to the car and thoughts just of my own father, of my own husband, of what would I do if that happened to me? How must that have felt? You, you can't help, if you're a human being, you can't help but empathise with people. It's kind of, it's in our DNA, it's, it's, it's how we do things and I empathise so much with her. And I sat in my car and I cried and I cried and I cried. And just for, because it was, you're dealing with all that emotion as well that she's thrown at you, not in, not in, intentionally, but, you know, she's talking about her, how there was not, her husband was obliterated. There was nothing left of him apart from just one piece of flesh. And that's how she uh, was able to identify him and uh, and a piece of his cardigan and that was all that was left of her husband and, and unless you're a robot unless you have no heart and soul you cannot help but be moved by by something like that so I mean that's a kind of story that that you, you have to cover whenever you're a journalist and you know you cover you cover funerals and you're there at the back of the church being very discreet and, and recording things but you're soaking up all the emotion all the kind of uh, whether you think that you are or not, whether you think that you're a tough cookie and you don't not this doesn't impact you, let me tell you that whenever you stop being a journalist, whenever you stop, you get off this kind of um, roller coaster or whatever it is, you'll start to think back. That's what happened to me. I start to think back about things. That's what happened to other journalists, and they think back about all the other stuff that that they have seen, or the other, a lot of the times that they came this close to perhaps dying, or this close to being very seriously hurt, or or whatever. It starts. It comes back on you then. But um, you know, there there's so many experiences, there's so many stories that you're you're there and you're soaking up all the emotion, all the anguish, and the you know, the energy, all that kind of stuff, that the trauma and people talking about their, you know, their experiences and people talking about the very moment that they heard, you know, that their their loved one died or that they were there when their loved one died or they were there when they took their last breath or something like that. You can't help but be, be moved by, by something like that. And I suppose it's our job as journalists to kind of record that and <clears throat> all that emotion record all that emotion and put it in the story so that it moves the people who are reading it or listening to it or whatever just as much as it moved you whenever you're sitting there in their living room and they're you know they're they're crying in front of you you know so thinking back to 2019 um with the uh, murder of lira um you know i knew lira a wee bit um not not particularly well but we would have emailed back and forth about different mm -hmm. things that we were working on and she was very interested in the work I was doing on loyalism particularly when she was doing the um, research in the Concora um, yeah. and would tie it up actually that week via email again I was doing some of the research on Sammy and Anthony McLeave those murders in Belfast in the 1970s and I at that stage I just had thought, been thinking about it again and I thought this would be really good for Lyra 
you know, not wanting to actually go to all the effort of doing it myself. But I said, look, have you ever heard of this story? And she got back and said, no, wow, that's amazing. And, you know, what, 12 hours later, she was dead. And for me, that's, you know, I... I'm, again, I wouldn't ever make this about me or, you know, put myself at the centre of this, but still, I still find it difficult to come to terms with the fact that somebody so talented and somebody who had such a fantastic future in journalism yeah. um, was taken away. Really, when, you know, when we think about the society we're living in now, that shouldn't be happening. So what 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 was that like for you? Because obviously, you know, you were actually there and it, it had a uh, profound effect, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I didn't know Lyra. I, I didn't know Lyra at all. I'd, I'd heard of her, certainly. She was uh, a friend of my friend, and that's how I kind of I saw them there that night. So, um, I mean, I was covering a, a riot, and I was working for the Belfast Telegraph and Q Radio um, that night, and, and I had heard that there was a riot, so I was up covering it. And then um, I, uh, I I met my friend um, there, and she she had brought Lyra and, and Sarah up, and uh, talking to them just very how's it going or whatever, not very in depth or whatever. And I just got on with my my job, and that was kind of filming the rioting and reporting and fighting stuff for social media and stuff like that. And then um, at about eleven o'clock, I just remember I always remember my kind of I'm always really neurotic whenever I'm out at things like that because. You know, things happen at riots. It's not. It's not. It's not a kind of. Um, it's not a fun thing. You know, there's things happen. You know, the the petrol tanks can explode. You can get hit by a petrol bomb. You know, obviously the worst happened that night. Um, so I was kind of like up against a wall, <clears throat> filing my copy day the the Belfast Telegraph, and I heard what what I thought was shots, and I I ran up the street and. Um, and everybody everybody else just stood there because they thought it was fireworks or fireworks going off. It was really chaotic kind of scene. You know, to paint the picture, I'm sure we're all very familiar with riots and stuff at this stage in the game. Um, but there were flares and there were um, fireworks going off and bangs and, and stuff like that. And there's people everywhere and there's people running up with petrol bombs and whatnot. Uh, but I heard a very distinct, obviously been around a, few corners and I heard a very distinct sound of a gunfire of, of, of you know someone firing a gun and I, I ran up the street and I actually heard bullets whistling past buzzing I don't even I don't know what the sound the exact sound but I heard something flying sort of past my ear I could hear it very distinctly as I ran and I was shouting to people to get down and they're, they're shooting get down and people were like wise up you know it's not shooting it's fireworks everybody just stood where they were but I had got down behind a, 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 a wall and I, just right in front of me was the Land Rover where I, I was just a few feet from it. I just ran a few feet down behind the wall and where I looked over at the Land Rover and there was, um, there was I, I thought it was a, a pile of clothes. I don't know why I thought it was a pile of clothes. Who would be having a pile of clothes out? But uh, um, there was somebody hugging the front sort of wheel of the Land Rover and then someone started screaming and then from that moment on it just was so chaotic people were talking about um, <clears throat> we need to phone an ambulance I phoned an ambulance and I was trying to explain to the person, people were gathering around, there was people shouting at the police who were still in the Land Rover at this stage that you know someone was hurt and and um, I was phoning the ambulance and I, I couldn't because of all the chaos and because of there was someone lying on the ground very badly injured <clears throat> I don't know, I, I was really, I couldn't get the words out for the ambulance and I tried to explain to them where we were and there was all different types of things happening. There was people shouting and screaming, people banging on the side of the land, people crying and stuff and um, and then eventually the, the police got out of the Land Rover and, um, and tried to help. My friend had also taken off his coat and put it under Lyra's head and and um, there were just people sort of all, just, it was just so, so chaotic. It's hard to describe even the, the chaos and everything that's happening. There's fireworks. I just remember having nightmares for months and months afterwards about people's faces. The faces just really stuck in my head as well. Lyra's face, obviously. But also just because the fireworks were red and they were exploding and you were seeing people's faces and the anguish on people's faces of the people who were there with Lyra and the other people were there who just were looking at this scene, this horrible, terrible scene on the on the on the ground. Um and uh 
So Lyra was taken away in the back of a Land Rover and they just crashed through the barricades and they took her to hospital and she, uh, where she, she died. And uh, the, I just remember afterwards the sirens had kind of faded at this stage and, and the, I think word had got down to the bottom of the street that, you know, someone had been shot and it was eerily, eerily quiet. And um, my friend was just standing there and his hands were just covered in, in blood and I was just like... It was just like, what the hell just happened? And that was a, all that scene was about three minutes, and it just it felt like it was about thirty years. Just even on the on the phone to the ambulance, trying to kind of, you know, they were asking, has she got a pulse? And I couldn't get anywhere near. Her. And I'm shouting at people to to get, you know, to help and let me let the ambulance people know. And and um, from the minute that I saw that kind of person hugging the wheel to the police drover sped her down the street was about three minutes but it felt just like an absolute eternity and um yeah it was it was so it was it was the most traumatic thing i've ever ever experienced and, and, and i hope to god i never have to experience anything like that again it impacted me so much and i didn't even know lira you know it was it impacted me I I went home that night and I sat outside in my car because I couldn't go into my house um, and see my family because I just felt, you know, something awful has happened here. And if I go in, talking about that emotional barrier earlier on there, if I go into my home, my emotional barrier will drop and I will have to deal with whatever I have just seen. So I sat out in my car for about six hours outside my house and because I had... Um, because I had uh, tweeted about it, I think I tweeted about it, <coughs> what, what had happened. <clears throat> um, the journalists from all over the, the, the world were kind of, you know, I think the PSNI had actually tweeted and I retweeted that I had been there or something like that. And then so journalists started phoning me at like four or five o'clock in the morning. And um, so I just sat there doing interviews. Day The sun came up and... It was, and I, I, I was completely numb. It was the the weirdest feeling I've ever had. I was completely numb. I didn't, I didn't, I, I was like an out-of-body experience. I don't even know how to describe it, what that actually was. And, you know, obviously it was a trauma response where your brain just shuts down and your body just goes on the autopilot. I think that's what it was because I couldn't, I couldn't sleep. I couldn't, I didn't sleep for about four days. I nearly went insane. And at the same time, I was going to these vigils up and I was still working. And I was, I had to work because reporters are tough, aren't we? We're tough and we're, we're hard nosed and we don't let the story, we're not the story. The story isn't about us. But I, I was completely broken by what I had seen as a human being, seeing another human being slain like that in the in the in the middle of the road, basically, and um, and people cheering at the bottom of the street for someone firing a gun up the up the up up the street at, at us, and and and, at, and taking someone's life, and I just. It was like you're seeing the very very worst of humanity, and it took me a long time. They realize <clears throat> to you that um, I, I not only seen the very worst of humanity that night, I also saw my my, my friend Emmett, who didn't know Lyra at all, and taking off his coat and comforting her and her, you know, while she's dying basically on the street. And I always, whenever sort of in the dark, in the dark of the night, whenever <clears throat> whenever the nightmares come and stuff like that, I I think of him I think of of that and that that's a kind of you know a total stranger helping another human being who is obviously perilously injured um in the street and that's kind of you know yeah that's kind of just a wee light in the dark but yeah it was it was horrific and the, the months after it were absolutely horrific I've never experienced anything I'm still not completely over that I'm still um and I, I, I don't like to make it about me because obviously someone has lost their 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 daughter, their their girlfriend, their sister, their aunt, their much loved friend, their you know, somebody somebody really, really important to them. Um but I suppose I went through counselling and stuff like that and I actually felt guilty about about feeling traumatized by it. And this is another thing of trauma as well. I felt you talked about that a wee minute ago, Gareth. 
uh, I felt guilty about being traumatized and I wasn't for telling anybody that I was traumatized because it wasn't my trauma to feel and people actually didn't say that to me it's not this isn't about you somebody this this girl has has died and it's terrible and it's not about you and and it almost you know silenced me again I suppose and in some ways maybe I did that myself I don't know but it was horrific and it was the months after were horrific and um and I don't think I don't think the the memories of that night um I don't think they will ever, ever go away. It's kind of it's something that just you have to kind of live alongside. That when you see something as horrific as that, when you see someone brutally murdered in front of your eyes and dying on the street, it's not something that you can just kind of brush away and find somewhere in your head and and um, and forget about and get on with normal life. It's always kind of there, and it's kind of it's brought to the surface whenever you know there's there's. Um, development in the court case or you know you open a paper and, and poor Lear's face is, is beaming is, that beautiful smile she has is beaming back at you and you kind of it brings it just brings me back to that night and seeing her face yeah I mean there's, there's so much to, to unpack there to be honest Leona um, I was on the shankle the day the, the bomb uh, went off and you try to tell people what it felt like because it's not like a Hollywood movie it's not what you see in the TV it's it's an entirely different feeling you, you, you called it out of body I, I would have said you probably went hollow inside that's how I felt you just sort of you become robotic and, and you shut down and yeah. you, don't take, you don't take the memories on board um, and then you do feel guilty because I wasn't hurt so why sh- why should I why should I be looking the sympathy of somebody but I think you're in the right place that you should have it was traumatic for you as well you you witnessed something, somebody inflicted that upon you. So I I don't think yeah I don't I don't think there's an issue with you feeling traumatized. I think you're fully entitled to to that. But if we can look at the silver lining, God, it's horrible we can do that in this country. And um, if we look at the silver lining, that created a watershed moment for politics here. And I think it was, yeah, it, was, it, did. It, it was a kick up the backside that they needed to get back around the table. Um, yeah, they made made a bit of progress. But why did why does it take why does it take an innocent life to be lost for us to get to that stage? Why why do we have to go through this? And it's not the first time. Yeah. Why 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 are we here again? No, this is it. It was it was quite um poignant to be at the the church service, at the funeral service as well, and, and listening to Father Martin McGill actually, um, who has become a good friend of mine um since then, talking about, you know, why is it taking why is it taking the murder of an innocent twenty nine year old to get everybody back in the same place and get us all back on track? I remember for months before uh, Lyra's murder as well, you know, dissidents were kind of making some headway. They were, they had planted the bomb outside the the courthouse in Derry and and I was constantly, I read an Irish news column and I was constantly writing, um, you know, the lack of political institutions here is creating a void that will be gleefully filled by malicious, uh, people with malicious intent. And I suppose nobody really believe that and I think we're at the same position again now which is quite scary we're in the same position where you know we have no political leadership there's just a kind of we're just we're 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 lost at sea a lot of the time and that's the time when when people with malicious intent come in and um they come in and they you know they they do horrible stuff I'm just realizing there's a helicopter for (laughs) For the last 10 or 15 minutes, as, as above Derry here, I don't know what's going on. I live beside, um, I'll not say where I live beside, but yeah. I don't know if, I, I don't know what's going on. It could be something to do, some trouble somewhere or whatever. But There's, uh, a, hel- there's uh, a helicopter up in North Belfast here as well. So, um, <laughs> so we're, we're, we're matching. We're yeah. matching helicopters. <laughs> That's okay. As long as, as, long as you, can, you can still hear me. But um, it's, but it just like things like that, like the helicopter, will just reminds you that we don't live in a normal society here. We do not live in a place where you know you can just progress, you can just get on with things, you can you know happily raise your family, you can go to your job, you can whatever you, whatever you want to do. It's kind of um, you know there's always some kind of barriers there. There's always some kind of political barriers, sectarian barriers, and it's it's quite frightening that, that in 2022 that's still there. I mean, I wasn't expecting, I don't think anybody was expecting to have, you know, to be talking about murders in 2019. You know, someone being murdered on the street 
or you know they're they're all our murders before Lyra's murder as well. You know, when we were growing up, I suppose it was every every day something like that was happening. But we thought we'd put all that that we thought all that was in the past, and it's sadly not. And has it been dealt with since then? I, I don't think so. It probably it could happen again. And after Lyra's murder, I mean, we talk about the trauma that you suffered, from, you know, from being there on the night. But in in my mind, a lot of the abuse you encountered. Um, in the subsequent days and, and months, um, can, can you talk about that? That pro- I mean that that ties in with a lot of what me and Sam talk about with Twitter, social media, and how yeah. you know people like to ratchet up the tension. But I think I think it was obviously with you. It was just a wee bit. It was a lot more than that. There was a lot more than trolls and that type of thing. Yeah. Can you talk a bit about that to give people an idea of, of, of yeah. what, what went on? So. I, I was telling you there that I was there in Craig and that night and I was filming videos and stuff and I was posting them on social media and when anything like this was a worldwide event, Lira's murder was a worldwide event, when something like that happens, um, conspiracy theorists latch on to it firstly, so first, the first, I don't know, thing that happened was the conspiracy theories latched on to this story, uh, they took my videos and um, it was a very famous conspiracy theorist from Dublin. I don't know if you, you probably know who it is. Um, sent all my videos to this Canadian conspiracy theorist who had like hundreds of thousands of followers. So that was like the day after Lyra was murdered. Um, she made a video um, saying that I was an Illuminati that because I had met I'd met Nancy Pelosi that that same day that Lear was murdered, Nancy Pelosi was in, in Derry at the border. I'd interviewed her that morning and then that night Lear was killed. So um she put this Canadian conspiracy theorist put two and two together for it was a false it was a false flag, first of all. Lear hadn't actually died. I was hiding her somewhere. And then um Nancy she found out that found the Nancy Pelosi video or whatever and said that I was an Illuminati and that I had Lyra murdered uh, as a sacrifice for the Illuminati. And more and more people were making these absolutely mental claims about uh, Lyra wasn't really dead or Lyra, was di- Lyra had died and I was a liar. Uh, even saying things about poor Sarah, Lyra's girlfriend, and um, just making these absolutely mental videos. But the problem was that they had hundreds of thousands of followers, so... I hadn't been on social media at all and because um, I just couldn't face it. I just couldn't face, you know, social media is like at the best of times. But when you're really just raw from this experience, I didn't want to go on social media. But I went on and I had I had thousands of um, notifications and 98% of them were from really horrible people saying that they wanted me to die like Lyra or they were going to kill me like I killed Lyra. I should be arrested. I should be... I was like, what the hell is this? Where's all where are all these people coming from? Didn't know what it was. And then people were were tagging me in the video that this Canadian woman had made and all her claims that um all our all our conspiracy theorists in the, in Ireland and across the UK had made as well. Um so that was that was that. And then of course, dealing with that, there was people that set up blogs. I remember this one person from Dublin has set up a blog and was just basically slagging me off, saying that I said that I was there because I wanted to raise my profile. I um, I was glad that somebody, you know, somebody had been murdered because it raises my profile because I needed work as a journalist or whatever. But this one particular guy, um, he had actually set up this a blog really nasty horrible horrible stuff uh, and I was completely off his head as well I think because he was saying that I was a witch and that um he was raising money to come up and attack me and he knew where I lived he knew where I worked and stuff like that so that was a kind of the first couple of days and I just thought they're all um mad and um the uh, is my video frozen there has it sorry no, it hasn't. It's frozen at this side. Um, so that that was that was grand. That was the first couple of days, and I just thought, listen, I'm just going to leave these guys. They're completely mad. I'm used to dealing with crazy people on social media. I'm just going to let it be. But the problem with that was that I didn't fight back against it. So then, local people, local kind of people that maybe had malicious intent as well, grabbed onto these, and they just ran with it. They ran with the fact that I was a liar. They ran with the fact that. 
I was um, picking on bits and pieces of the of the troll and of the conspiracy theorists saying that I um, I was just doing the, the I would do anything for a story. I would all, all this absolute nonsense. Um, and I turned into almost a sport. I turned into a sport in the first like maybe week after Lyra's murder, attacking me and and kind of this person is trying to make the story all about her, even though I didn't speak. I I remember doing. Um, I think I did a, a story with Sky News or something, and I didn't speak about it after because after the after twenty four hours, I just shut down completely, and I couldn't even think. I couldn't even do anything. Um, but they said that it was all that I was doing all this because I, for a story, I'd do anything for a story. Um, and I went on and on. I went on and on for months and months. This kind of hit hit Leona because she's she reported on this, or hit Leona because whatever. There was graffiti up on the walls. There was threats to me. There was threats to my children. There was people like a, a, I, had, I had serious stalkers that I had to go to the PSNI about. People with quite serious mental health issues that said they were going to stab me outside work. They said they were going to slit my throat. Um, someone someone took a picture of me in a coffee shop. I I would have um, I would have worked in town and I would have always went to a coffee shop at lunchtime. Someone took a picture of me sitting by myself in the coffee shop and with a threat on it. Um, and I was just bombarded with anonymous trolls. And I, I know that a lot of them were, you know, they were dissident supporters. They didn't like the fact that I kind of perhaps because I was there and I spoke about it, I elevated, maybe they thought that I elevated the story or whatever. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. And you can't put yourself in the in the mind of of some of these people that you know they they would willfully take a gun and shoot up a street, and then they would also willfully attack a, a journalist who was there. Um, so much, you know, sending me sending me messages like, "Have you killed yourself? Yes. How, how's your PTSD? Oh, you were traumatized, were you? You know, you haven't seen anything yet. With the next time you come up to Craig, and um, you're not allowed back in the bog side. If you come back, I'm going to drag you out of your car." And these were all anonymous people, and it was relentless for months and months and months, absolutely relentless, um, to the point where I was actually, I was afraid to go out. I was afraid to kind of, you know, as a person in the in the, the queue in front of me in Sainsbury's, a guy at the front of me in the queue in Sainsbury's who's looking at me, is that the guy who said he was going to slit my throat? You know, the person looking at me and picking up my child from school, is that the person who said he was going to drag me out of my car in the bog side? I, I felt threatened by everybody. And you know the the and I think people knew that, and that's why the kind of graffiti went up on the wall about me being a tout and and me being whatever I would do anything for a story and all this kind of absolute nonsense. Um, but it, it was hard to fight back against all that because you're one person, and you know a lot of these people were uh, from my city. Some of these people were from my city. Some of these people from, were from, you know, nearby. And, and a lot of the people, I didn't know who they were. And, uh, I went to the police about several people who <clears throat> seemed obsessed with me and obsessed with this whole, um, story. And, um, the police just said it was a gray area and there wasn't anything that they could do. So it was, it was hell. It was kind of, it was a trauma seeing someone murdered and dying in the street. And then it was compounded day after day after day with all these absolute crazy people threatening you online and, you know, saying the most horrible things. Even now when I post something, three years later, I posted something about the book. Someone comes on because it's, you know, um, it's it's just a thing that at the sport of attacking Leona. Um, uh, have you not have you not given over about that yet? It's kind of you know you make it all about you, and it's kind of that's that's kind of thing where you're silenced again. You know you're you're not allowed to talk about this because it upsets people because they said it was an accident or um, or you make Craig and look bad or you know it's just it's it's crazy so that was yeah i was relentless and that was really really tough going that was horrendous social media abuse and i felt very very alone at that time because how many other people i suppose can you kind of talk to about that you know it's even even counselors that i spoke to about it it was kind of you know they've never experienced anything like that or they've never experienced of, of a patient or whatever you want to call it who might have experience of that, that kind of relentless abuse. It was horrible. It was a horrible, dark, terrible, terrible time. And it, it still feels really raw that, you know, that 
nobody could help. Nobody helped me. Nobody could help me. I suppose the social media giants could help, but they they didn't really. But also, you know, I don't know. So I just I was just I, I stayed mostly quiet about it because who wants to hear someone um, whinging about about the stuff that happens to them online whenever there's a bigger picture here? You know, a family lost their daughter, their sister, their you know, they're they're very much loved loved person. No, I think, you know, when you talk about the counselling there and the trauma counselling, uh, myself and Sam would definitely be advocates of counselling. I think we've both been to counselling um, and we would be very open about that and encourage other people if they feel that that is something they need, that they should definitely um, utilise that um, service. Um, but it, you make a really good point there. We have counsellors who can deal with some of the mental health problems and anxiety that people encounter. Also, we've got, you know, with WAVE and other organisations, people who are um, attuned to uh, intergenerational trauma, vicarious trauma. But yeah. you've, you've made a really good point there about the abuse on social media, because that can have a really profound effect on your sense of yeah. self, um, on, on how safe you feel in society as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know... As you, you make a that point you make about you know the guy standing in front of you in Sainsbury's is that the guy who was threatening to slit your throat? I mean, that that chimes really with a lot of what myself and Sam have probably experienced. Not to the same extent. So what what can what do you think can be done to help people? I know you're not an expert in counselling, and none of us are here. But what what do you think needs to be done to to help people feel that it is okay to say? I'm worried about this. I, I feel that I'm in danger because of what people are saying about me online, about the messages, that it is okay to say, I, I feel afraid, I feel worried about this. Yeah, I think that people don't take it seriously. I think people think, and also the people who are piling on, the amount of pylons, and I know you've experienced these as well, you both have experienced these too, but people don't realise the the damage that those, those type of things do. Can you imagine, and maybe it's people that haven't had that experience in, in themselves, but you know, you're you're putting something up on social media or whatever. Social media is not a place where you go for. I found anyway. You know, if I ever talk about my own kind of mental health, I get all the, the terrible people coming on and telling me that I deserve to suffer and stuff. So it's not really a place for for counselling as in that in that way. But you know, people don't realise. People need to realise the impact that they their words can have on social media. People come on trolls. Um, faceless people and they just they, they join in the pylon and it's almost like a sport as I said before uh, attacking this person and just you know as if they're not a real human being um, they have to realise firstly people have to realise that there's actually a human being with feelings and with kind of fears and what have you behind that social media account that they're a target now at the minute but the social media uh, giants, the the bosses, have to do something about about this. I mean, Twitter is a cesspit at times, um, most of the time actually, and um, the amount of abuse that that people dish out on that because they're safe behind their keyboard, they're safe behind perhaps a, um, a pseudonym or. Um, or, or just a fake profile. They just think they can just dish out this stuff. And, and when you're sitting by yourself at home and you're getting, you know, threats, nonstop threats from people or really horrible, vicious comments or, you know, people telling you that they want you to die or people telling you they you deserve this or you deserve that or that they're going to do this or they're going to do that. It doesn't matter if, you know, they're, they're it's anonymous trolls or if it's, you know, um, someone that you know from the, the from your city or whatever. It still hurts. It still kind of impacts. It still it still has that really bad impact on you. And um, I, I don't know what can be done. I mean, I, I just, sometimes I just give up on social media. I post something about, um, you know, like say a bonfire. You put your opinion off on a, bon- of a bonfire and, and, you know, there's five, six hundred notifications. Next time you go on, there's five, six hundred notifications, and most of them are shut up, you're stupid, you don't know what you're talking about, or you're sectarian, or you don't. And I just think, what? It's, it's not a place for civilized conversation. Um, but I think people's mindsets need to change. People need to realize that there are people behind those, um, you know, whether it's a journalist or a politician or a public figure or, or whatever. 
Um, there are human beings behind that. And, you know, that level of pylon where five or six hundred people or in my case, sometimes there were thousands of people on underneath um, or, or sending me messages or, or notifications or whatever, really vile, horrible, uh, violent kind of uh, words. There's somebody at the end of that. There's somebody at the receiving end of that and they're only they're only human. So, yeah, needs dealt with. And the police need they also, and I think they have actually, um, they're doing a, a far better job these days, um, thankfully, and, and sort of tackling these type of things. Um, so I, I think it's a combined um, approach that we need for that. Yeah, yeah I agree, Leon. I mean, in the, in the last couple of months, I have reported comments not on my own twitter feed but on somebody else's one was threatening and one was extremely sectarian and twitter gave me the same automated response that it didn't breach their terms of of good behavior and therefore there'd be nothing done yeah. with it you know it absolutely sort of hilarious if you want to look at it that way that that can be the case yeah i mean and and the amount of sock puppet accounts out there i mean there's got to be a better way for social media to to verify people whether you have to upload your passport or your or your driving license yeah. or some other verification because the amount of people out there with false names, false pictures, and they just spend hours and hours torturing other people. And that's what it is. It is torturing. I know. Yeah. It is. No, it is, Sam. It really is. I don't think of people maybe that haven't felt the, you know, felt the wrath of, of Twitter's fill really understand what it's like. It's really... It, it really damages your mental health. It really impacts on your mental health. It, it impacts on your sense, as you say, Garth, of safety. It kind of it makes you feel vulnerable. It kind of makes you feel like I genuinely, over the past couple of years, genuinely felt I'm a really confident person. I have a really, I have a really um, good sense of myself. Uh, I felt everybody hated me. I felt every single person, apart from obviously my family, <laughs> um, but. I felt everybody hated me. I felt like, you know, the, the, obviously they must do because look at the thousands of people on social media saying that I'm a horrible person or that I'm, uh, I did this or I did that. or And it's just, it's horrible. It's a really horrible environment. So with with breaking um, being published, is there a sense of um, healing or catharsis? Is, uh, do you get any feeling of that from, from taking ownership of of these experiences yeah i do actually because as i said there previously um you know there, there stuff was sprayed on the wall about you know me being a tout for example or um touts will be shot and touts will be annihilated and and then the people online tell me to shut up about about this and even people in person tell me to shut up about about various you know about lira mckee or what happened and stuff like that this is kind of I, I I find it very therapeutic to write about stuff, and that's when I started off. I just wrote, I just wrote what was I, I was really finding it very difficult to deal with uh, stuff, all this stuff rattling about in my head about that night and about um, my feelings uh, around it. And I just wrote it for myself. This is my chapter. I just started off and I wrote it for myself, and then. Um, I find that very therapeutic. I find a little, you know, I'm. I'm pretty good at chatting. I am better at writing. I can kind of, I can get my thoughts together and get my emotions on an energy onto the page in a far easier way than I can do um, talk about them. For for a long time, it's only recently, maybe in the last maybe a couple of months that I've, I'm able to talk about what happened that night and, uh, and my feelings around it without without crying, without losing my actual voice, without kind of my voice breaking and me having to kind of stop and drink water and and whatnot. I, I've only recently been able to, you know, talk and it's, it's through talking, it's through sharing my story, it's through kind of doing panels and stuff with people that I've found the courage to kind of do that because I think, because nobody's telling me, shut up, shut up about it now, we don't want to hear it brush it onto the carpet, you're giving Derry a bad name, uh, you're giving Craig a bad name, touts will be shot, all that kind of stuff. Nobody's saying that back to me and it's kind of giving me a wee bit of courage to kind of speak about it. But I wrote the first chapter, or I wrote my chapter, sorry, um, just to get it all out of my head and to get all the emotions out of my head and how I felt about it. And that's how I kind of have always dealt with things. I just write about stuff. Um, you know, and and then I remember I remember going to Stormont and... Um, talking people people obviously wanted to talk about and this is in the months afterwards you know 
people obviously wanted to talk about that night and about what happened and um and asked me how I was doing all our journalists you know in in, in the news sort of arena up there in Stormont and people were coming to me saying listen this it's not the same thing but this happened to me and I kind of I really struggled with this and I had to get counseling or I had to take antidepressants or I did this or I did that and I thought you know what there's I'm not by myself all those months I'm sitting in the house and people are giving me dogs abuse online and I'm thinking I'm the only person that feels this way or I'm the only person that feels so dark and damaged by all this kind of thing. And then other people were sort of feeling the same way. And um, I remember over over COVID, um, I put out a call about, it's the weirdest thing about people who had thought that they had COVID before COVID was a thing, you know, the, the Christmas before it was actually out and, and stuff. And Chris Lindsay um, from the BBC said, I, I, had, I think I had COVID before we got chatting on the phone. We did the story of the Belfast Telegraph and uh, we started talking about um, the Lear McKee thing and how I felt about it and stuff. And we just, he was telling me that he had a kind of similar experience and it was kind of him that was injured. And I said, you know, I, I would really love, uh, there's so many people telling me their stories. I would really love to compile them because I felt completely alone in this. You felt completely alone in this. And all these different people that are sitting on their own, thinking that they're by themselves with all this pain and pressure they kind of keep on going pressure to be hard nose pressure to be tough cookies um but look you know there, there's there's a lot of people that if we raise our voice in this and go you know we are impacted by this or we have been impacted by this then it might give other people courage to talk about it as well and that did and there was 15 other people joined us and they talked about their story and it's not easy telling people particularly when you're a journalist that you are you know, that you have vulnerabilities, that you were broken by something. It's not easy to talk about your darkest, darkest moments in a very public book. But, you know, people give very graciously of their time and of their stories and of their, you know, of their own experiences of all this. And um, and that's what made that's what made the book. And it's, and it's, it's really, really powerful stuff. And it's people you know, that you're seeing on your TV screens, like David Blevins, um, like, you know, Niall Carson, the photographer, you know, all, all those people that you would kind of be very familiar with talking about their very darkest moments, turning the kind of camera or the notebook or whatever on themselves. They're, they're used to telling uh, other people's stories and now they're telling their own story. And it, and it was really, really difficult to do that. And I, I really I commend all of them for um, for taking part in this because it, it will make a difference. It will hopefully, we were talking about at the very start, change that mindset of, you know, reporters need to be tough. These are all seasoned, 20-odd years reporters um, talking about how the news broke them. And that's, you know... And that's how, that's going to make a change. I'm very confident that will make a change. You know, me and Gareth talk quite a bit about the human costs of of living here. Uh, you get the initial victim, the you get the the witnesses, you get the, the immediate family. But this is just another branch of that ripple effect, moving its way out. And through your writing and through your reporting, other people then experience that trauma as well to a certain extent. Uh, but they get the they get to see how how that story unfolded, um, but it's it is another human story that we're we're interested in telling you on it because it's it's always overlooked. We we nobody I think ever considers the the people like yourself, the journalists. Uh, we never consider the firemen to turn up. We never consider the police no. officers to turn up, or the ambulance drivers, um, the That's undertakers. True. Yeah, I mean, it, it's just another one of those layers that we can add to this place. Um, and I'm really grateful yeah. you came on tonight to talk about it. Yeah, it definitely is. It's, I mean, I, I do um, I do resilience training. I do uh, hostile environment training for our guys in Ulster University. And I've brought in um, the ambulance folks. And um, and I'm trying to, that, that's one of the things I'm trying to change in the newsroom as well. I'm trying to tailor um, <clears throat> a, a resilience, for, for want of a better word, or a journalism safety or a mental health um resilience program in our newsrooms based on what you know the ambulance service can currently do because they obviously see far worse than what journalists would do but they they kind of the debrief at the end of whenever they come back from maybe a a, a traumatic incident 
and they, they they check up on their people you know a week later a couple of days later and stuff like that and there's a, there's a, a person there uh, a designated person there that can help uh, their um their staff to deal with anything and that's what i i want to i want to kind of um shape something like that for for newsrooms because obviously journalists see something completely different to the ambulance guys the ambulance guys go in there first they're dealing with all the kind of the physical the 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 blood the kind of the trying to save people's lives journalists are sort of like the second line of people go in there and they're dealing with all the emotional stuff the the trauma the um the, the psychological things that people are dealing with after the actual event so yeah that's how i'm trying to do things raising the voice um telling people this is my story i'm a, a a journalist this is what happened to me this is how i felt look at all these other people this is how they felt what you're feeling in the newsroom today if you're feeling down about something or you're impacted by something it's completely normal because look at all the rest of these people that have um professional well-known journalists that have felt the same thing and so just trying to make chiseling away and trying to make wee changes well, Leona, thank you very much, um, and you know, commend yourself and Chris for taking the bull by the horns and um, you know publishing this book. I think it'll be um, of great value to future journalists, um, the 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 young people that you're teaching at the moment, um, and if it does open up that um, you know avenue for people to have these conversations rather than go down the you know avenue of drinking or you know substance abuse or dealing with overworking and that type of thing it can only be a good thing so look uh, congratulations and myself and sam definitely recommend the book to everybody out there and would um certainly recommend that people buy a copy thank you you want to thank you very much for coming on thanks sam thanks gareth take care thanks doing it